I'm Peter Medic, and you're listening to Episode 6 of Return of the Birds. In the last episode, we completed Burroughs' first essay. So if this is the first time you've dropped into the story, you might want to go back and listen to the previous episodes. But you're welcome to stick around. Please visit 44from26.com to find show notes for each episode. The show notes include links back to the Macaulay Library bird vocalizations we used in this episode, images of the birds mentioned in the episode, and more. Right quick before we start, I want to give a special thank you to the thousands of women and men in the field who recorded and cataloged the bird calls and songs I used over the course of this audiobook. You are doing selfless and important work. Thank you. In the Hemlocks Most people receive with incredulity a statement of the number of birds that annually visit our climate. Very few even are aware of half the number that spend the summer in their own immediate vicinity. We little suspect, when we walk in the woods, whose privacy we are intruding upon. What rare and elegant visitants from Mexico, from Central and South America, and from the islands of the sea are holding their reunions in the branches over our heads or pursuing their pleasure on the ground before us. I recall the altogether admirable and shining family which Thoreau dreamed he saw in the upper chambers of Spalding's woods, which Spalding did not know lived there, and which were not put out when Spalding, whistling, drove his team through their lower halls. They did not go into society in the village. They were quite well. They had sons and daughters. They neither wove nor spun. There was a sound as of suppressed hilarity. I take it for granted that the forester was only saying a pretty thing of the birds, though I have observed that it does sometimes annoy them when Spalding's cart rumbles through their house. Generally, however, they are as unconscious of Spalding as Spalding is of them. Walking the other day in an old hemlock wood, I counted over forty varieties of these summer visitants, many of them common to other woods in the vicinity but quite a number peculiar to these ancient solitudes, and not a few that are rare in any locality. It is quite unusual to find so large a number abiding in one forest, and that not a large one, most of them nesting and spending the summer there. Many of those I observed commonly pass this season much farther north, but the geographical distribution of the birds is rather a climactical one. The same temperature, though under different parallels, usually attracts the same birds, difference in altitude being equivalent to the difference in latitude. A given height above the sea level under parallel of 30 degrees may have the same climate as places under that of 35 degrees, and similar flora and fauna. At the headwaters of the Delaware, where I write, the latitude is that of Boston, but the region has a much greater elevation, and hence a climate that compares better with the northern part of the state and of New England. Half a day's drive to the southeast brings me down into quite a different temperature, with an older geological formation, different forest timber, and different birds, even with different mammals. Neither the little gray rabbit nor the little gray fox is found in my locality, 
but the great northern hare and the red fox are. In the last century, a colony of beavers dwelt here, though the oldest inhabitant cannot now point to even the traditional site of their dams. The ancient hemlocks, whither I propose to take the reader, are rich in many things beside birds. Indeed, their wealth in this respect is owing mainly, no doubt, to their rank vegetable growths, their fruitful swamps, and their dark-sheltered retreats. Their history is of a heroic cast, ravished and torn by the tanner in his thirst for bark, preyed upon by the lumbermen, assaulted and beaten back by the settler. Still, their spirit has never been broken. Their energies never paralyzed. Not many years ago, a public highway passed through them, but it was at no time a tolerable road. Trees fell across it, mud and limbs choked it up, till finally travelers took the hint and went around. And now, walking along its deserted course, I see only the footprints of coons, foxes, and squirrels. Nature loves such woods, and places her own seal upon them. Here she shows me what can be done with ferns and mosses and lichens. The soil is marrowy and full of innumerable forests. Standing in these fragrant aisles, I feel the strength of the vegetable kingdom, and am awed by the deep and inscrutable process of life going on so silently about me. No hostile forms with axe or spud now visit these solitudes. The cows have half-hidden ways through them, and know where the best browsing is to be had. In spring, the farmer repairs to their bordering of maples to make sugar. In July and August, women and boys from all the country about penetrate the old bark peelings for raspberries and blackberries, and I know a youth who wanderingly follows their languid stream, casting for trout. In like spirit, alert and buoyant, on this bright June morning, go I also to reap my harvest, pursuing a sweet more delectable than sugar, fruit more savory than berries, and game for another palate than that tickled by trout. June, of all the months, the students of ornithology can least afford to lose. Most birds are nesting then, and in full song and plumage. And what is a bird without its song? Do we not wait for the stranger to speak? It seems to me that I do not know a bird till I have heard its voice. Then I come nearer it at once, and it possesses a human interest to me. I have met the gray-cheeked thrush in the woods, and held him in my hand. Still, I do not know him. The silence of the cedar bird throws a mystery about him, which neither his good looks nor his petty larcenies in cherry time can dispel. A bird song contains a clue to its life, and establishes a sympathy, an understanding, between itself and the listener. I descend a steep hill, and approach the hemlocks through a large sugar bush. When twenty yards distant, I hear all along the line of the forest the incessant warble of the red-eyed vireo cheerful and happy as the merry whistle of a schoolboy. He is one of our most common and widely distributed birds. Approach any forest, at any hour of the day, in any kind of weather, from May to August, in any of the middle or eastern districts, and the chances are that the first note you will hear will be his, rain or shine, before noon or after, in the deep forest or in the village grove, when it is too hot for the thrushes or too cold and windy for the warblers, it is never out of time or place for this little minstrel to indulge his cheerful strain. In the deep wilds of the Anirondacks, where few birds are seen and fewer heard, his note was almost constantly in my ear, always busy 
making it a point never to suspend for one moment his occupation to indulge his musical taste. His lay is that of industry and contentment. There is nothing plaintive or especially musical in his performance. But the sentiment expressed is eminently that of cheerfulness. Indeed, the songs of most birds have some human significance, which, I think, is the source of the delight we take in them. The song of the bobolink, to me, expresses hilarity. The Song of the Sparrows, Faith. The Bluebirds, Love. The Catbirds, Pride. The white-eyed flycatchers, self-consciousness. That of the hermit thrush, spiritual serenity. While there is something military in the call of the robin. The red-eye is classed among the flycatchers by some writers, but it is much more of a worm-eater and has few of the traits or habits, pardon my Latin pronunciation, of the musicapa, musicapa, or the true Sylvia. He resembles somewhat the warbling vireo, and the two birds are often confounded by careless observers. Both warble in the same cheerful strain, but the latter more continuously and rapidly. The red-eye is a larger, slimmer bird with a faint bluish crown and a light line over the eye. His movements are peculiar. You may see him hopping among the limbs, exploring the underside of the leaves, peering to the right and left, now flitting a few feet, now hopping as many, and warbling incessantly, occasionally in a subdued tone which sounds from a very indefinite distance. When he has found a worm to his liking, he turns lengthwise of the limb and bruises its head with his beak before devouring it. As I enter the woods, the slate-colored snowbird starts up before me and chirps sharply. His protest, when thus disturbed, is almost metallic in its sharpness. He breeds here and is not esteemed a snowbird at all, as he disappears at the near approach of winter and returns again in spring, like the song sparrow and is not in any way associated with the cold and the snow. So different are the habitats of birds in different localities. Even the crow does not winter here, and is seldom seen after December or before March. The snowbird, or black chipping bird, as it is known among the farmers, is the finest architect of any of the ground builders known to me. The site of its nest is usually some low bank by the roadside, near a wood. In a slight excavation, with a partially concealed entrance, the exquisite structure is placed. Horse and cow hair are plentifully used, imparting to the interior of the nest 
great symmetry and firmness as well as softness. Passing down through the maple arches, barely pausing to observe the antics of a trio of squirrels, two gray ones and a black one, I cross an ancient brush fence and am fairly within the old hemlocks and one of the most primitive, undisturbed nooks. In the deep moss I tread as with muffled feet, and the pupils of my eyes dilate in the dim, almost religious light. The irreverent red squirrels, however, run and snicker at my approach, or mock the solitude with a ridiculous chattering and frisking. This nook is the chosen haunt of the winter wren. This is the only place, and these the only woods, in which I find him in this vicinity. His voice fills these dim aisles, as if aided by some marvelous sounding board. Indeed, his song is very strong for so small a bird, and unites in a remarkable degree brilliancy and plaintiveness. I think of a tremulous vibrating tongue of silver, You may know it is the song of a wren from its gushing lyrical character. But you must needs look sharp to see the little minstrel, especially while in the act of singing. He is nearly the color of the ground and the leaves. He never ascends the tall trees, but keeps low, flitting from stump to stump and from root to root, dodging in and out of his hiding places and watching all intruders with a suspicious eye. He has a very pert, almost comical look. His tail stands more than perpendicular. It points straight towards his head. He is the least ostentatious singer I know of. He does not strike an attitude and lift up his head in preparation. And, as it were, clear his throat, but sits there on a log and pours out his music. Looking straight before him, or even down at the ground, as a songster he has but few superiors. I do not hear him after the first week in July. While sitting on this soft cushion log, tasting the pungent acidulous wood sorrel, the blossoms of which, large and pink-veined, rise everywhere above the moss, a rufous-colored bird flies quickly past, and alighting on a low limb of a few rods off, salutes me, almost as you would whistle for your dog. I see by his impulsive, graceful movements and his dimly speckled breast that it is a thrush, 
Presently, he utters a few soft, mellow, flute-like notes, one of the most simple expressions of melody to be heard, and scuds away. And I see it as the viri, or Wilson's thrush. He is the least of the thrushes in size, being about that of a common bluebird. And he may be distinguished from his relatives by the dimness of the spots upon his breast. The wood thrush has very clear, distinct oval spots on a white ground. In the hermit, the spots run more into lines on a ground of faint bluish white. In the viri, the marks are almost obsolete, and a few rods off his breast present only a dull yellowish appearance. To get a good view of him, you have only to sit down in his haunts. As in such cases, he seems equally anxious to get a good view of you. From those tall hemlocks proceeds a very fine insect-like warble. And occasionally, I see a spray tremble, or catch a flit of a wing. I watch and watch, till my head grows dizzy, and my neck is in danger of permanent displacement. And still do not get a good view. Presently the bird darts, or, as it seems, falls down a few feet in pursuit of a fly or a moth and I see the whole of it. But in the dim light, I am undecided. It is for such emergencies that I have brought my gun. A bird in the hand is worth half a dozen in the bush, even for ornithological purposes, and no sure and rapid progress can be made in the study without taking life, without procuring specimens. This bird is a warbler, plain enough, from his habits and his manner. But what kind of warbler? Look on him and name him. Orange or flame-colored throat or breast. The same color showing also in a line over his eye and in his crown. Back variegated black and white. The female is less marked and brilliant. The orange-throated warbler would seem to be his right name, his characteristic cognomen. But no, he's doomed to wear the name of some discoverer, perhaps the first who robbed his nest or rifled him of his mate, Blackburn. Hence. Blackburnian warbler. The burn seems appropriate enough, for in these dark evergreens his throat and breast show like flame. He has a very fine warble, suggesting that of the red start, but not especially musical. I find him in no other woods in this vicinity. I'm attracted by another warbler in the same locality, and experience a like difficulty in getting a good view of the author of it. It is quite a noticeable strain sharp and sibilant, and sounds well amid the old trees. In the upland woods of beech and maple, it is a far more familiar sound than in these solitudes. On taking a bird in hand, one cannot help exclaiming, How beautiful! So tiny and elegant, the smallest of the warblers, a delicate blue back with a slight bronze-colored triangular spot between the shoulders. Upper mandible black, lower mandible yellow as gold, throat yellow, becoming a dark bronze on the breast. Blue yellowback he is called, though the yellow is much nearer a bronze. He is remarkably delicate and beautiful, the handsomest, as he is the smallest of the warblers known to me. It is never without a surprise that I find amid these rugged, savage aspects of nature creatures so fairy and delicate, but such is the law. Go to the sea or climb the mountain, and with the ruggedest and the savagest, 
you will find likewise the fairest and most delicate. The greatness and the minuteness of nature pass all understanding. You listen to Return of the Birds, a serialized audiobook podcast of Wake Robin, written by John Burroughs and read by Peter Medic, with bird vocalizations courtesy of the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Recording, editing, mastering, and post-production by 44 from 26 in Bellingham, Washington. Recorded at One Fine Studio in Bellingham, Washington. This has been a presentation of 44 from 26, a family-owned and operated media experiment. We invite you to join the growing 44 from 26 community at patreon.com forward slash 44 from 26. For more updates, visit our Patreon page or check out 44from26.com. Wake Robin is available for digital download in e-reader format at archive.org and gutenberg.org. This is 44 from 26. Thank you for listening to this episode of Return of the Birds. Any flubs, goofs, and mispronunciations or errors are mine. If you hear one or two and want to tell me about them, stop by 44from26.com forward slash contact and click the button to leave a voicemail or send an email. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Peter. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend or two. Or tell one friend, and then dare another. It will really impact the trajectory of our project. Thank you. Till next time, chirp away. The things I've learned this week. Uh, the eustachian tube is the canal that connects the middle ear to the nasopharynx. The nasopharynx is the upper throat and the back of the nasal cavity. The best part is, it clicks makes a clicking sound when you talk or read into a microphone. It's almost as fun to edit out of audio as it is to listen to it in the audio. I think we're out of the woods, the medicine cabinet's full, and with fingers crossed, hopefully we're back on track. Thanks.